Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thank you for tuning in to our 25 Years of VTM podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook, YouTube, and Patreon as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsvtm.com. With that, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to a very exciting werewolf pod record today as we're going to go over uh, the Black Labyrinth. This book is basically, well it's not even basically, this is like the Book of Nod, but for werewolves, but with a twist. And what I mean by that is it's to the very dark side of werewolf. This is not, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this off the bat, this book is not for the faint of heart. It's not for anybody who gets the heebie-jeebies or worried about maybe someone's trying to trick you to join a cult or sort of thing like that. I mean, it's very much a prop book, but they're not, they're not quick to tell you that. This is, the, this is a book where I would think they'd pull out all the stops to let you know what goes on with that. Really not there until the end. If you picked this up off the shelf and bought it, and you weren't aware of what it was or what the game was about, you would probably think you had an actual occult tone. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, it's actually, while you bring that up, I was, I was kind of thinking, I was like, eh, is, this a, is this a Black Dog book? And looking at it, no, no, it's not, not Black Dog at all. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it is definitely an, an occult book. Like, uh, the, the great way that they put things in here in the, in the way they phrase it, um, it's incomplete information. It's always from a misunderstood perspective and it's always, uh, kind of like half in half out stories. There's no complete anything that's really detailed in here in any clear and precise way you're not going to get that these are all kind of like fractured tellings and right. and that's uh you know like you would expect out of any occult tome of you know like indiana jones spelunking for weird knowledge uh <laughs> that it's really what you're going to get here which i think is i like more than than the release of the book of nod because the book of nod was almost too complete right uh, the, the well not to not to say well let's not do that book of nod is its own thing and i agree with that point um, but the Chronicle of the Black Labyrinth here, small red book, except the marbling in the front, um, has the silver grooves and edges that are in it, which is pretty awesome with it as well. And the funnest part about this book is that obviously it being a prop, you're free to explore with the imagination and enjoy all the Easter eggs that are in it. Now, we're going to get into just what you guys should be getting this book for. If you're a storyteller and you want to showcase the worm in a not-so-obvious light, this is chalk-filled with a lot of content that you can piecemeal out and hand out as prop information to characters who discover it. That's one way. Another way, this book is like a seductive piece. It's meant to call to the heart of that player who's going to get Wormlore. They're going to get that Wormlore. They're going to want to use it, right? That's that knowledge, that forbidden lore about the enemy itself. And you're going to want to let them have it. Like, if I were inspiring st and i decided i want to make it real easy on myself and i had a copy of it um or, or the pdf of it i might say hey player why don't you uh give me a worm lore and see if you can uh research what you're looking for about this said worm artifact or item or what have you and if they go ahead and make that lore and whatever i might just hand them the book 
this is what you get. It's like, what is my lore? Yeah, your lore leads you to this book. And uh, why don't you look into it a little bit, read a bit, see if you can discover anything about it that might help you see what item you have. And the fun part about that is you're playing a game of hot potato with story when you do it that way. You, the ST, aren't disclosing exactly how this random occult item would be delivered to anybody, right? You have no idea. However, the player might come up with an idea from looking in this book. You know, they might say, I want to contact this actual story, this guy who's mentioned in here as an editor, or go look up these publications or whatever the situation is. And if they're going to do that and they have the means to do that, well, now you got a story. Now you got a side plot, thing, gig, whatever that you can take as an ST and broaden that out in your world because now the player has an interest in it. They're going to come back at you with it. Although, there is a risk. You might get a player who just stares at you. <laughs> right? We've all been there. Like, oh, my, I get this book? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll let you know what they do with it later. And then they shelf it, right? They're just... <laughs> if you had a physical copy to hand it to them, like, I'll just take it home with me. I'll bring it back when I'm done, Bob, uh, reading it, I guess. And uh, I suppose it'll help me then. And, you know, come say, come saw. I mean, those are the pros and cons oh. of it. Or like the worst part, they just send you a downtime, read first chapter of book. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> just, just don't even do it. Now, that's just some of the usage you can get out of the book. Now, you can be as serious with it or as lighthearted as you want. And But I mean by lighthearted, you're not going to get any smiles out of the content in this book. But you can be um, lighthearted as in story heavy, but light on the players having to figure it out. Because you might have an inexperienced player or two and your werewolf troop, and you might have to slow play it, give them a little at a time, and help them out with it, but then kind of let them know how their character feels going through it, or they begin reading it, the discomfort, or whatever you want to give them uh, to set the themes of this book. Now, why I say theme? There isn't one. You're not going to get that guidance here. It's not going to tell you how to feel. It's not going to tell you what it was aiming for. But it will become very clear as you read through this exactly what you're in for. And, and I want to say off the bat, Nick, there's not many things I read that make me uncomfortable. There isn't. I mean, just like most of the stuff we go over to date and all of whatever White Wolf has created so far, it's, it's not bothered me. Onyx Path, Modiphius has been cool stuff, but it's nothing that shocked me, especially with today's, you know, quote unquote, woke culture, cancel culture, that sort of thing. It's, you know, you got to be careful with how you jar people or trigger people. This book is old school. It's a 96 publication. They had no problem in 96 of smashing you in the frickin' nose for, yeah. for graphic, for horrific, all that. So with that, we're going to have to give my first ever, uh, here's, here's your warning. I don't know where me and Nick are going to take this. Yes, we did an outline. Yes, we took our notes as always. Yes, we researched these, you know, some key points to hold interest to, to make this entertaining. We did do that. But of the points I know that I'm going to go over, I'm warning you right now. Um, there is there is child violence mentioned in this book. There is um, incest mentioned in this book. There is um, there's there's several key elements of discomfort that they don't hold back mm -hmm. when it comes to that, and they can't. Now, why they can't is because I very much feel that the authors deliberately sat down and said, "Well, we want to mimic a book that's an occult book that occultists put together." of a secret organization that they believe they're walking down a spiritual right to go through the book to search the greater mysteries of within, right? Of the order of Vermis, right? The order of the worm type thing. 
And uh, many terms like that are mentioned in this book. And it's an Easter egg. You got to look stuff up. Got to kind of have to define what they're going for and what it means to you. When you do that, I'm I'm just strapping you in for the ride. Um, Those of a religious bent. Yeah, there's two accounts in this book where the people who witnessed or, or read it supposedly killed themselves afterwards. So the question is, you know, like it's got to be that unsettling for the reader as it was for for those who delivered the accounts. So expect that it's, you know, some stuff that might hit you very hard. And without further ado, we're just going to get into it. And starting with the content of the book, it goes into a, you know, other than driving home that it's a forbidden tome of wormish lore. And they, they, I mean, they slam it home. I believe, uh, let's see, this quote I took from here. It's uh, being a compilation of narratives and documents from many sources in various times and lands collected by divers' hands and exhaustively annotated for the further enlightenment of neophytes and initiates. Hmm. Deep end talk for saying that this is not for the lighthearted. Nor <laughs> is it for people who are easily... I don't want to say tricked, that they can't... A lot of people read, and this is going to be a big piece that you're going to have to be able to break down and take breaks. To research effectively you're not going to talk your way through this you're not going to speed glance read through this and get the content you will have to look up several terms just to keep up just to get along with it that's part of it <coughs> excuse me but the cool thing about this is after it tells you that's what it's about they have in canon credits that go for this right it tricks yep. you in the beginning of the book Yep. It says that it was excavated and compiled and annotated by Freighter I.I., Keeper of the Dark Orb and Gazer into the Abyss. What does that mean? I have no idea. But suddenly it feels like I took something off a Levian Satanist bookshelf and I I shouldn't have it, right? They do that very easily with that descriptor there. They also give a very weird preface entries. There's two of them. Um, what did you think of the prefaces, uh, Nick, when it comes to like the 1995 preface that rolled into the 1970, how they did it, like they went back in time. They did, they did like current and then they stepped back and they stepped back again. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was both awesome and, and hilarious. Um, having like the 1970s version where this guy's like, oh my God, look at this thing I discovered. I just had to print it. And then the 95 version where someone's like, yeah, this is absolute drivel. Uh, you know, like someone's just trying to justify their Aleister Crowley left-hand path nonsense. Really, the only reason we're printing this is because we could use the money and it'll sell. It's, but in that Easter egg, and I said there's a lot of them in there, what's that doing? It's weird. Because they warn you, right? There's a, I believe it's the preface for, um, I want to say the 19, it is the 95 preface where they give a huge warning. Where they say we're not responsible for any spiritual trauma or psychological damage that this is going to do to you. We're not telling you to do this. We of Lubala Publications warn everybody that, you know, if you're going to take this spiritual journey into the occult, then whatever you're doing this of your own volition, what, why we're even reprinting this is because of the demand for it. It disappeared, it was taken out of circulation, and then everyone wanted this book. And because of that, we're offering it to you. This is capitalism. At its finest, right, is what they're saying. It's like what you see at the beginning of the Anarchist Cookbook. Don't do anything in here. We understand you want to buy this. We'll take your money. (laughs) What's what's sexy about it, though, is that this also is like the urge worm of corruption. Right? You could feel that, too. It's just, it's it's slipping in. 
right between the ribs. It's like, you're going to pick it up because we said don't. You're going to read it because we said you shouldn't. Right? Just like some of you are going to listen, even though you might be triggered later on. You know, yep. you're going to... You're going to seek and you shall find. We know how, how they people do this work. to us uh, because the cat was curious. That's how it happened. <laughs> um, but what's cool is the preface 95 also calls this arcane and esoteric pornography. My I favorite enjoyed, line. I enjoyed that line so much because it was like, yeah, you're just, they trash it. They're like, this yep. is utter mm. trash. Don't even bother. But thanks for your money. <laughs> That's the cool thing about it. The, um, the, the preface in 1970, however, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just jump into that a little bit. Now, we were talking about this. this. This talks about, basically, it's Hunter S. Thompson meets a Doors superfan in Egbert Reeve, which is a red Blooded Press uh, editor here who gives the preface, describing a wild night on Jim Morrison's psychological and bending band, The Doors. Now, for the first time, I want to say that they're actually mentioning an actual band and actual people. But this, is too, is a trick the authors do very well. And this time I mean the authors of real life, right? They, White Wolf, they made this. By them doing this, it still makes it feel like it's a book you picked up off the shelf you shouldn't have. Yep. Typically, they avoid famous people. They avoid works and stuff like that. And, they, and, and maybe there's a little bit of stink eye here that, that maybe they shouldn't have mentioned it without throwing the credits in to Jim Moore. You know what I mean? Like, but they, you could use it. Why not, right? I don't see any harm in it either. And the way they get into this guy... <clears throat> Egbert is that they make you feel this guy's kind of a well it's, it's the 70s it's the easiest way I could put it it's like you know the season of love and it's you know counterculture you know kind of not even a renaissance the counterculture period this is where it starts and hits that peak and everything's going on everything's civil rights and we're going against it you know the, that whole nine the whole backdrop but that's kind of the whole point as, as Egbert is talking about being in a club, hanging out in this club, and the experience he has there is, is everything uh, to go with it. Now, it should be important to note, I went back and read this a couple times. Nowhere does it say Egbert dropped acid, that he's, that he's, that he's on anything. What it's hinting at here is that when it tells you this tale that he goes into, it's of him being out in a club and hearing the doors play somehow mimicked a bad trip as as you coined nick and i I agree with that it was like a bad psychedelic trip through something it it made him lose himself as he thought about kind of kind of what what he felt internally more than anything like he was truly looking at decadence and who he was and the pursuit of it and he kind of ramble bramble stumbles uh, out into the alleyway and finds himself lying on his back I, i like how they describe this too He's laying down on his back, and he describes how people rifle through his pockets. Like, folks come out of nowhere and just take advantage of him where he is, and he comes to realizing that the streets have had their way with him. And when he sits up, he looks and sees a guy just staring at him from across the way. Like, he wouldn't have noticed him otherwise, and this guy deliberately waited until he saw him just to introduce himself. And this would be Freighter I.I. and how he met him. What I enjoy about this is that Freighter I.I. is really a creepy way to kind of give your name. Because it's not a name. Right? It's like a title, but it's not a title. You don't really know who this entity is or this person is at all. And I did this a lot looking at this book. I tried to research what that would have meant, and it's just a title. I.I. is a literary reference that they use. I think the closest I found was code. It's computer code. It's like a jargon <clears throat> for HTML script. 
they do have it in there later on. It's like, uh, I.I. is like, for some uh, Latin thing, like Incantus and Sanctimonious or something like that. But they only put it in one spot way later in the book. But when I cross-reference that too to see it, even that's obscure. Because it's, uh, it's, it's something they do on purpose. There's a lot of people they mention in here that they don't give a definitive name to, but they'll give a false name. And it's like it's meant to draw you into looking it up. I kind of like that. It's like you need to look at to see what's real to decide your own truth like you would when you research something. And so they made it not impossible, but like you just said. In the book later on it mentions it, but there's other things it can mean. And then maybe I'm wrong, and maybe that's the point. And, and that's kind of fun. How they do that, right? They make it very, again, obscure is good. Now, why is because the person who approaches them, you know, Freighter approaches Egbert and tells him, come with me, right? Takes him to this place. And the way Egbert talks, you got to understand who Hunter S. Thompson was, right? That gonzo journalism, when he wrote about what he, he writes what he experiences is basically the easiest way to describe it. But he's a good writer. So because of that, it, you know, he immerses you in what he did because it's what he did. And that's as simple as that. It's kind of what Egbert does. Throws it up there. This is what this guy was and what he's about. But what he describes is something that I would find terrifying. To have all that happen to me and some music had some sort of way to make me stare within. And I feel like confronted myself. My inner dark self. And just let go. And I wake up in a sally. This guy sees this come with me. And when I go to his apartment, there's occult books just stacked. Serious occult books, bound in unknown leather, um, things like that, etchings and markings and weird esoterica here and there, and just a guy who now wants to have a talk with me. And what do you think of Freighter? I know that when we talked about it, you saw him differently, which which cracked me up when we were talking about it. Well, it's not even that I saw him differently. Like the um, the the author himself, he was just presented differently to him, right? So he's like, hey, dude, come on, don't worry. You know, it's all just go with the flow. You were you were in the first circle, man. Uh, let me show you what it's about. It was very just like that, speaking to him in his own language, the way he wanted him to be speaking to him. And I agree with that um, in, in that term, because I think I like what you do. Um, that, I mean, what you're saying is, is this guy Freighter I him probably isn't that way. Definitely doesn't seem he's that way with uh, the collection, the way he approached this. But he's telling him that you are you just completed the first circle on your step of a lengthy right. And it's, uh, it's the black labyrinth you're trying to walk, the black spiral specifically. And it completes by you staring into the Temple Obscura. That's where the black spiral is housed in. And that journey is this book. And the book is to serve as a guide for future adherents to walk the spiral. That's its point. You know, so like, wow, wait a second. We've been reading up to this point. You gotta be a werewolf to walk that spiral. There's like a right you do in a hive and that's all going on and people are there. But wait a second. And I'm positive it was Nick who pointed this out. It didn't say you had to be a werewolf. Right? That's a misconception. I, to me, the worm takes everybody, right? Doors always open in hell. <laughs> it's twenty-four-seven. Yep. Get to the fast line. We take a ball. There's a there's a point later on where it actually breaks down, like step by step, going through these rituals, just like you expect it would, because this book's here to help you. Um, and it says, you know, at certain points, when it comes to opening the portal, it's best to have a true dancer to help out. <laughs> you know, 
But it didn't say it was absolutely required. It just says it really helps. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good idea to have one here just in case it goes bumpy. And uh, sometimes, even when you need it to go bumpy, and that's, that's a point later on found out in Rome. Uh, but the editor Reeve uh, points out that the, the many issues of, of chaotic elements in the time and, and the rise of the counterculture, the, the, the top-heavy over-regulation pitting each other at odds, and uh, the, you know, the anti-capitalism feel of that era, it's, it's to bring out what this book actually is, right? He and Frater I intended to do a mass corruption, and, um, or something did. Something urged him to do it with this book, and it's to get everyone that reads it through a process that forces them to confront and face the darkness within. Very important. And um, it's, it's kind of a message that says that it's, uh, it's, it's the revolution of love, right, that's going on, but at the same time, there's chaos to go with it as the establishment is still trying to rein that in. You know, them dirty hippies and bring them in and make them realize what really is going on. And, and people want to do that. But that tumult, that uh, conflict, this feeds, well, the worm. That's the point. And it captured this in this era. But even the preface wars with itself. And I also like, and I thought to myself, there's a reason there's, there's two prefaces and technically three. Right? There's three heads of the worm, aren't they? And it's, and it's sort of the same thing. And subtly, they could represent some of the faces and facets of that. Um, so if you look at this, the, the real introduction in 1968 by Freighter I.I. himself, this gets even weirder. Right? It says, in 1735, the original Black Sparrow Labyrinth is published by Lord Alfred Craven. And he described this Lord Alfred Craven as this, this interesting guy, Nick. What, what's so fascinating about him, though? Um, well, he's, uh, he's aristocracy, right? So he's like an old, uh, an old general that just kind of had this, uh, terrible, terrible hatred for Scots. Um, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible hatred from Scots. It got to the point where he decided he was going to do, like, mass research. He's like, well, I'm not on the battlefield anymore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find all this information I have, you know, for these Scottish brogues. I keep messing up, you know, our, our wonderful kingdom. and through whatever research he compiles all of this quote-unquote evidence um that's compiled in this book um as to the, what is the cause of the scott problem in england including the corruption that leads all the way through the to the royal bloodline <laughs> and man does he get graphic right there's there's writings he dives into where because well, it leads up to this guy getting his head cut off Right, he's executed by beheading. And it's because he's actually, as much as he's decrying uh, the Scots and Scottish nobility and all that, it's, it, he's, he's Scottish. Right, he, he's his line. His mother, I believe, is a princess and, and would be uh, the princess of the King of Scotland, except they dissolve the, the title of king at that point, and that king serves in a, in a function in, like, in like the UK. Is how, how, how it goes down there. And when you hear this guy decrying the Scots as being inbred and their strange rights and what they've done and uh, how they, the intermingling of blood, like he really went graphic on how they do that sort of thing. I don't think we need to like sully ourselves here just yet and going in detail about that. And actually right at this point in this book, they don't really get into detail yet. They just more or less say that's pretty much where he went and they weren't having it. When they got a hold of his works and they actually looked at it, and they read and went through it. Man, the authority of the land, the king said, you know what? 
um, cut his head off, burn all his works, and get rid of this uh, atrocity. Oh, there's this a reason for that, too. Because uh, the king is descended from Scottish nobility yes. as well. <laughs> so he basically just, like, backhanded insulted the king to his face in, in a literary work. And the king was like, treasonous asshole, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you don't open your mouth about the king. Now... Um, but what else did he reveal here is that in, in his talks, right, he had the circular arguments that became actually almost legendary by the way they talk about it. His, his arguments, endless, he could argue anything, is what they make it seem. And it was always, as they say, circular, which was a huge point they made. Like three times they mentioned this. And then they go into the fact that the realization that there's a grand conspiracy of the Black Spiral, right? A hidden supernatural group that controls the halls of power is what he stumbles upon. And so basically... He's like, oh shit, they're real. The Grove. <laughs> That's immediately what I thought of right. our Grove buddy. You know, he's like, they're out there. Wear your plastic, your, wear your tinfoil hats, they're real. Can't do anything about it, the lizard people. This is, uh, <laughs> this is what he sounds like. However, there's a point he comes into where it says that the, the method that he's kind of stumbling on is that um, there's a psychologist, uh, C.G. Young, that's actually quoted here, that has a method whose central tenant is uh, strikingly familiar that one must identify and confront one's shadow, the dark, rejected aspect of one's personality, uh, then embrace it and reconcile with it, thus obtaining inner balance and strength. This is very creepy when you consider the precepts of this book. Its point was for you to pass the first circle, and the first circle was very much that. Confronting your dark self, owning it, standing up with it, embracing it, and then looking without because you've mastered within, which is the point. And uh, it was C.G. Young also had an interesting quote, too, that I felt was relevant. And that says, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. I immediately thought of Werewolf and how it's set up. How the tribes have issues with each other. And if you think about it, uh, the, I'll just use the, the flagship one that we always talk about. The Geta Fenris hating the weak. Right? The reason why they epitomize strength is because they fear they are not strong enough. It's the truth they will never say to you. Because they're always having to prove it. If you were truly strong, you never would have to prove it, right? And so, this philosophy here that Young throws down in a quote, it bears fruit. You can do that to every single tribe. Look at what they have as a strength and understand that it's also a weakness they have. And that's interesting when you consider, well, what did the Black Spiral dancers do? They, hey, you can't, uh, how do I put this? We got to force people to join our tribe, right? So we're going to have Metis left and right. We don't have a problem making Metis because we'll commingle that blood until the stars wink out because it guarantees us a werewolf and we need soldiers. That's, that's them accepting what they are. That that weakness, that they don't have that pure blood, they can't wait around for, you know, the sprouting mm. of perfection yep. blood, right? That's, they, they don't have that weakness, but the Guru Nation does. And that's why there is an apocalypse, you know? Back in the day, it was said, when the Black Spirals were originally founded, the only reason why they survived is because we didn't have cell phones. There was nobody who can get that information out immediately to let anyone know that that was what happened or what was going on. Like, a way different time. And because of that, they had time to kind of germinate and build their number and operate with cunning and in secret. And this is uh, the, the only way they survived, in fact. But after a while, when we get up to the modern, there's almost no stopping them. Because they're, they're systematic in how they make more of themselves. It's an important point there. 
And uh, it's, a, it's a lesson that's kind of left there. But again, this cuts too close to the quick. This is how you gain Wormlore. The moment you see the logic in its context and you're like, oh yeah, I understand it. Ah, the worm's gotcha. You can see it. Well, then you understand then what we're trying to tell you. We're not lying to you. We're not trying to trick you in anything that isn't real. This is all the truth, right? Why, why have your ideals when you understand what we're telling you is just how it is? It is very manipulative writing and very cunning the way it's delivered. However, I did read something online I thought was, was adorable. Where someone said, don't be tricked by this book. It's poor writing. It's poor delivered. It's just like a shitty comic book with, with less pictures. Is what they threw up there. They said, don't buy this book. And I sat there. And I thought about it, it for a, a second. Was it a double troll? <laughs> right? It's, it wasn't that it was a double troll. What I think is, is this person was triggered. Because there's a story they mention here, which we're about to get into... Um, where they talk about the, the precious white hollers, right? And this is really into Rome, and we're about to hit that. Um, yep. In fact, let's just, we get right to it, right? Yep. Um, right right now, we have the, uh, the Apoch of Calamity, which is called uh, Book One. And uh, the Calamity or the Calamitous Worm, Calamitous Vermis, whatever you want to refer to it as, this is what it is. And it's, our narrator here is a se- over a series of letters, right? Because Chapter One is a Centurion's Letters. This directly relates to Rome, as we just previously mentioned. And it talks about Titus Germanicus, who was a Roman centurion stationed at... Uh, I'm not going to butcher that. How do you pronounce that, Nick? Um, I, I, Hadrian's Wall? Well, it is Hadrian's Wall, but it's at uh, Corstopitum Modem. Oh, yeah. Corbridge, right? Corstopitum. Okay, good. Yeah. I don't feel as bad. Um, no, there it, it is, but <laughs> it's a long Hadrian's Wall. Yeah. Right, sometime, right? Somewhere in there. And it's about 200 AD. And it's talking about his efforts to push the frontier farther north. And uh, basically, there should be a Pax Romana at this point. He's griping at the fact that he's Rome's spending money to yep. bribe these chieftains to stop fighting. Right? Stop fighting Rome, stop fighting themselves. It should be a peace. And what the Pax Romana was was that the Roman Empire was so big that they had different cultures and they knew that that were in there. And so Bribery is part of that. And if a Pax Romana is made, and you agree to the Pax Romana, these benefits are unto you. And the goal was to kind of bring them up to the civilization that Rome was offering. And that was that. Well, we know this doesn't go well because Hadrian's Wall had to be erected. (laughs) Right in the first place. And it's a wild time. Um, it's, It's no fun to be at that wall. Uh, We're talking the savage tribes of Caledonia are just raiding the Romans at the wall. And to know this, the Caledonian chieftains basically see the Romans as treasure. They're like, imagine that, that these tribes are murder hobos, right? They're a D&D party. Like one, I'm really dumbing down history, but that's how I feel it is. Because a lot of what they did that terrified the Romans in the wall was that they didn't know how to make the gear the Romans had, but they sure did know how to kill them. You had a guard up there, a centurion with the metal armor, and he might have a shield, you know, and he might have a pylon and what have you. And they found a way to take hooks Grapple hooks to throw him up there and rip the soldier off the wall, stab him to death, and drag him off into the woods. Take his stuff and come back wearing it. Not knowing how to wear it properly, or piecemeal it out across several warriors, and now you see that going on. And these are people who are barely clothed to begin with, and I have no problem being with just like a breechcloth, if that, and this blue woad painted all over their body, just kind of hanging out, staring and waiting for more victims as they get the numbers to do what they're going to do. A series of guerrilla raids against a seemingly organized enemy. That's what they are. Now, what Titus is doing is he's pointing out the fact that 
he's no he's been out here a while and he just sees that this is uh this is going on where you know first it's the picks that come and raid them and then it's this other tribe who's actually coming to raid them and it's it's the Keldonians who are who are marginally up and they're jumping up and they're getting them and one seems to be a little more vicious than the other that's the Keldonians and uh the picks though the picks have a wild brutality to them as well when they get there it's not always the case and so he feels through his informants that he has amongst the tribes because remember they're trying to bribe them uh, to calm down that he can wiggle his way in how's this go for him nick well he uh i i like to say it goes pretty well but we'll find out at the end um he does manage to get a hold of the 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 pictish general one of them agrees to to come in as he calls him a king uh, a, a pictish king and and the guy agrees to take audience um you know at his location he comes in uh, short is the first thing he noticed and this is short for a roman um so he was like maybe like shoulder high even on a roman as as these guys kind of came in and and his disheveled crew as he said misshapen um like they had uh you know like been born with natural deflects curvature of the spine scaly skin in places and and things like that maybe a a hooked jaw or a crossed eye or whatever it is just didn't seem right it didn't seem all the way together uh, but this guy comported himself in, in a in a way that you could tell the guy almost respected almost like a uh like a roman would um you know spoke uh strongly you know walked with his chest out um and he what he wanted to do is he wanted to arm these pictish warriors with weapons and get them to go after the gales and uh and what he found out was, uh, once talking with this king, the king said, well, we could do that. He said, but I know where, where the real problem is. Why don't you come with us, and we can meet it head on. Because with your numbers, and with us, we won't have a problem. So the problem we have, you know, with the, with the, the gales and, uh, and, and with us trying to get together, we're just, we're just over, over, always at each other too much. But if you come with us, there's a good chance that... Uh, that we'll just be able to take it head out. And if you do that, then we'll both take on the, the gales and it won't be a problem either. And what's interesting is, is the reading there. I, uh, I took this as a, as a mysterious setup of a type. It's what it felt like. And it's because when he talks to the king, the king's aloof and it's not really a king. Right? He points that out. Titus is like, you know, it's not, he doesn't actually have the command of his people. How does this guy not control? Like, what are you the king of? And Titus says he's in her thoughts that, you know, inbreeding amongst royalty is common amongst these savage tribes, these barbarians, as he put it. And that's just, just what they do. And so it must be that they don't uh, rivalries or whatever, and so he can't get that secured. All right. So this is half-hearted. It's half-done at best. But this guy goes to add. He doesn't tell him 100%, yeah, you got us, but here's what we'll do. Everything you just said. And, but you got to come with us into the heart of Pictum is the point. He basically writes like Indiana Jones, well, I'm off. And, you know, well, you'll see me after a missive point of, of great time and story of high adventure. Next time you hear from me, I will tell you the great tale of what we have accomplished. It's interesting how that goes down, right? The leaving the wall is a lesson in insanity, right, by the next series, right, that goes on. Because, more or less, a, a war was witnessed by Titus. Yeah. He's He's coming into it, and he describes the land as being beautiful as he's walking. Everything's great. And that part where his men are, are speaking the language that Titus doesn't understand, but then, you know, 
it gets translated for him. I forget who did it. It was one of uh, one of his associates near him, I guess his informants came with. And they, and they translated for him to say that his men said, you know, now they're coming. By you bringing them here, you've announced, you know, what's going on and they're heading, their way, heading this way now. You know this. And they said it with fear. And it was quick. And they left it at that. But then they mentioned that the next series of uh, messages isn't a direct missive. Right, it's a bunch of scattered letters that is kind of describing the fate of Titus. And it's, it's sort of a disjointed effort, meaning that because there isn't a concrete explanation back to front of what goes on, it's giving you snippets of what Titus has experienced. Yep. So th- that's the start of it. Beautiful land, that scare. And then there's, there's some sort of conflict. That's the part that I really enjoyed. How they wrote it was... It's like bloody smudges on a, on a sheet of paper that he had to scrawl over because he always intended to give a report like a good centurion would about what he experienced and how this is going. But they actually write a part of this that feels like he experienced the delirium and his mind was trying to understand what it yeah. was. It, it's interesting because it, it, it rolls out like on the paper. Like if you were to have a knockdown drag out fight, but you were to do it under like one of those flashing lights, like a strobe effect, where it's yeah. just like, bam, bam, bam. And each strobe is something weirder and even creepier than the last thing. You know, like, oh, it's a giant bat with its mouth turned sideways. Oh, now it's a guy transforming into a giant white wolf. Oh, now it's this. And it's like, what the is going on here? <laughs> and, he, and he has no idea to eventually, he's like, I don't know if he's on the ground. I like to think he is because to describe the tent Kind of rough rolled. And as he's there, he just hears the story, or hears uh, King Brenner. Oh, this is after uh, King Brenner did this. uh, He changed into a wolf, right? He's a werewolf. And and what he did was he fought one of these bat-like things, one of these BSDs, tooth and claw. And at the end of it, he ripped out its heart, or an organ of a type. Typically, I'm assuming it must be the heart. In my head, it was. And he picks it up, takes a bite out of it, and then just sits down and begins talking to Brenner to tell him a tale of his people. Yep. Now you're here and you see what we face, let's have a chat. However, let me give you Titus's description of him, the fact that he sat there and said, this guy's just talking and he's shell-shocked. He's, he's literally just PTSD, doesn't know what's going on, he can't find his men. It's like he's there and these guys are missing. He came over with, what, with not, not the entire legion, but he came over with enough men... Uh, to have a, uh, he actually said the number in there, but I forget it. But it gives you, like, maybe there's like 20 men that he came over with. Enough to where he, like a scouting group that's just coming through to make sure he's protected, they could get back. And, wow, they're gone. They're dead or gone. And this king's like, hey, you're good people. You know, I like how you came out here, and I like the way you guys held yourself. And, you know, you stabbed some people. You did a good job. Um, well done. Hey, by the way, um, I should not probably tell you that, uh, this land wasn't always corrupted. It's pretty cool. You know, back when uh, the mammoths had to be tracked to get food that day, and this, uh, this ice bridge was everywhere, and it's one of people who know, hey, don't look at me that way, Roman. Our people are ancient, and we remember our stories. They go back that far. We white howlers remember. And you sit there, and you go, okay. And immediately, I was like, oh, yeah, we went over this. We went over this, we went over the Book of the Worm. They rough shot over the story. Of what happened to the like the last right holler, but then this Brenner guy goes, Hold on. 
you were told the last White Howler was this name Kororomuk or whatever, and may yep. his name be forever living in infamy, that he was allowed to live untainted. But he wasn't the last. Right? He was allowed to, he was the last of that group that fell to the worm itself. However, he made it out of the hole, came back to be devoured later by whoever. And, uh, well, his own pack, as it were. This guy, King Brenner, is something different. Now, we know what that difference is. If we remember what we talked about, we know that the worm is systematic. That isolated and cut off from everybody, which is what this story is talking about. It was at Hadrian's Wall. On one side, you had the Get and other tribes that were trying to, I believe it was the Get and Fianna, who were trying to come to help them against Rome itself. Because Rome was coming and bringing this evil with them. And Rome didn't entirely know why it was evil, but at this point they're dealing with vampires, is what it yep. seems mixed in the group, and maybe some from Moria, but nowhere near as heavy as it is yet, not yet, because it can't be. But this is the telling of that tale, of how it's getting there. And the King Brenner's telling him, we actually had this poison, this evil, um, long before, but it wasn't always that case. And when we had this purity, it was good. Back when the lion totem still guided my people, back when we still had all this stuff, the red deer... And, and none of this stuff is extinct. It was the good times. Even the king's in some form of PTSD. And he tells them that we need Rome. I think we need you. I think you're here to help us fight back and take our land and get it done so we can get rid of the corrupted elements that are amongst our blood. Help us purify. And if we mingle blood, it'll strengthen us. Because Rome, out here, could, could really change a thing or two. And here's the thing. What you know is Vermis wasn't always bad. And that's when you go... Oh, shit, he's screwed. Right, all hope for this king pick to be the, like the last of the white howlers and here comes again. You already know it's bad because he talks about the serpent people. Mentions that he's out here and that the serpent people lived in the ground before his own tribe got here, before the white howlers, and they yeah. ran into them. And the serpent people told them a story and that was that the vermis wasn't always twisted. It wasn't always insane. That there was a balance once upon a time. Even hints at the fact in their pictograms, they don't tell you this, you'd have to look this up. In their pictograms, they give you one of the worm standing on its own and whole. It isn't triadic. It doesn't have the three aspects. It's just its one self and that's this pure spiral. Then it has a Fomori symbol underneath. However, if you know Fomorians, you know the Fomori, they weren't necessarily bad. They were beings blessed, is what it was thought of. Blessed for war. Plus, for their own specifics, maybe not the nicest of entities, but they certainly weren't bane-ridden monsters yet. That's not how it was. At least, that's what they make it seem like. And in here, you have your fake connection, if you know Changeling. There was a Fomori army, certainly, but there was something that corrupted them. They got too much power too soon, and they fell to it. We know what that is. It's when the Vermis went nuts. Is when that corruption came into place. Because, the actual pictogram for a Fomori is you have the classic Fomori three-slash symbol, where it's like a reverse C, but then in the middle of that is the spiral, which is supposed to represent the worm corrupting their form. And that's what it is. That's the traditional one that you know, because I, I went and looked at that, and I went, oh, that's pretty cool. That's an Easter egg. And then that intense awesome, right? But then it also shows you, like, there's a, there's a gibbous moon and uh, the philodox moon, <coughs> excuse me, that are on that same thing. Which means... Maybe they're telling you what the pit king is and what he's talking about. Like he drew it in the sand. Where did this symbol come from? Why is it in the book in this entry at this point? And it, I'm, I'm happy it is because they don't answer it. They leave you to kind of figure and apply what that is because it gives you a false sense of hope. 
and what this king is trying to do and what he could be. However, what are the serpent folk? What could they be? Well, if you look it up, living in the ground, something that spoke to the worm long before anyone else, there's a name you're going to come up with. And this is in your worm book that we already reviewed. If you remember the Vajunka, they were the weird mm. humanoid monster entities that had the strange pseudopods and uh, they, they had the weird robes. And if you got too close, you realize that they're faceless. All they are is a fanged mouth. Six yeah, I forgot hand. all about those guys. That's what the serpent folk are. I'm convinced that's what they are. There's nothing else it could be. Especially when it talks about living deep underground and talking to the Vermis. And knowing what it's about. Because it openly talks to the Vermis, but it also makes you think they always had a plan to trick the White Hollers. The king basically points out that their people didn't always live underground. They learned it. And they learned how to do it. And you wondered who taught them it. And I think it's cute that myself included, we thought the White Howlers must have learned the right of the Badger's Burrow. Badger taught him how to dig. Or some other cool spirit showed him how to live in the ground out there. We really had no idea. You know, there was even some talk that their kinfolk just learned how to, you know, build them burrows and that's where they put their dead and everything else. And I'm with that. I could see that. But the writers are insidious. It's like they went even further to talk. Was there always some weird plan? to, you know, hey, you guys should probably learn how to dig down here. Why? Hey, we're just going to disappear. You're here, we taught you what we could, we're out of here. Have fun. It's a creepier aspect to think that this is a longer late plan, right? The inevitability that someone was going to fall and this was told from on high. Interesting. Because now I'm back to that thought where they said, everything's circular. Brenner told him that at this point. Because this guy came to him and said, I want your help because I want to put your tribe, the Picts, with the Romans to face the Kales. And he said, well, that's interesting because the Vermis moves in a circular fashion because before you, it was the Kales, uh, or excuse me, it was the, uh, the Serpent people and the Picts versus the Kales. And then it was even us versus uh, uh, the Romans, right? The Kales and the Picts now are against the Romans. And so it seems... That this comes in a cycle where we're caught in an endless war for some reason. That's just what it is. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is how it has to be. And that's just an odd way to put it. Like, this guy's already somewhat, you know, off his rocker a little bit. And you would be, considering what he's facing. Now, if something happens to this guy, and, uh, what's that story, Nick? There's some end point that comes down here between uh, King Brenner and Titus. And what is that? Man, I wish I could figure it out. So this is where it gets a little bit broken up again, right? They go into the ground that we know in a place called the Fovea, which is Latin for a pit. Um, he takes them down into this pit, and they're going to they're going to take it to him. And then what happens is uh, um, this guy uh, Titus Germanicus uh, loses track of where the king goes. Um, <laughs> Just like kind of like gets ahead of him or or whatever it is, and then uh, and then some weird stuff happens, and he like uh, I, I guess he's kind of like fumbling around the dark is what it describes it as, and he finds himself in like uh, an enclosed space of some kind uh, with a what seems to be the bodies of a bunch of things. Um, Roman soldiers, obviously, right? He can he can tell their gear knows that a mile away. But not just Roman soldiers. Um, right. On top of it, there's there's other things in here. There's Celts in here, and there's uh, um, the uh, the the Picts are in here as well. 
and he's trying to like you know like uh, come to the kind of weird conclusions to what's happening he starts to like fumble his way out and he's uh, accosted by these bat creatures again but this time they're holding the head of the king in front of him you know just up here it is and then everything goes a bit dark again until we get to the final letter and the final letter is you want to take it Oh no, there's 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 some deep stuff in here. I want you to do the final letter, but I we gotta describe that madness error, right? What's interesting is that this guy gets drugged down into what must be a pit by description, right? Because that's what it says yep. it is. But we're talking like a black spiral pit of epic proportions. Because it mentions that there's eyes on all sides and that bad eared thing is here again, which is that yep. classic symbol for that BSD in Kronos, right? The bad ears. And yep. uh it's a great imagery. Uh, that they have for that. It also, unfortunately for this guy, describes where his tried and true friend went. Right? It was the Iberian that served him like his right hand man. He mm. finds his head is down yep. here with a bunch of others that are just strung together like odd grapes, I think they said, hanging just around. Yep. Yep. And coldly, one of his, uh, I want to say uh, pages, I guess, is there. Like, I think his name was Quintilus. He took him with him. And I only remember him because this guy stands out in what he said. He said, Poor Quintilus. Ah, uh, you, t- you shouldn't have been in a mission like this. I mean, you didn't even have a chance to be with a fat woman yet. Ah, uh, yep. of all the pleasures, right? And it's and like it's like his brain's trying to escape. Like, it's trying to find a pleasure center or a happy memory or go somewhere. As he's being drugged around by this bad-eared guy who shows him the bruised and broken head of the king. Why that's important, they want him to see all that. They deliberately want him to see all that, and then it starts telling him, pay attention and don't pass out. We're going to let you go back, but don't forget who you serve. Don't forget who you owe blood to. Remember your real master. And they let him go. And what's that final letter, Nick? Because it's weird that all these other letters are just bloodied missives found sporadically, mostly destroyed. But this yep. last letter, right to where it had to go. Yeah. And at the end, it, uh, it says, Ah, uh, salutations, my legate. Uh, it, it's my pleasure to report that the King of Picts has been removed from the last of Rome's greatest enemies in Britannia. <laughs> and then goes on to, to continue with the platitudes about how he's been so successful, things couldn't have gone better, and, uh, and he's happy to report and send this prize of this king's, the last king of the Picts head, down to Rome, and then they can, uh, you know, how does he put it, like, uh, the last of these white howlers... Um, you know, he can, uh, join him once more at his villa, um, where they have that curiously thick and briny private vintage wine that he likes to keep. Right. It's pretty disturbing how that works out. And it also answered a question for us too here. It says that the, the Vrajunka, and this is in this book, these serpent men taught the vampires. It mentions vampires in here in their ranks, in Rome's ranks. It's brief. Doesn't call them vampires, but you know, the night people, sun, sun yep. aversion, blah, blah, blah. But then it says there's no way they could have got across Hadrian's Wall to get over on the other side, yet he knows they got there, and he knows how. By them telling about the serpent people knowing the ways, they said these guys must have led them across. Yep. It's the only way that makes sense. And then immediately, a while ago in a podcast, you heard me say, this doesn't make any sense. This writing's like jacked, and first that does it's crazy. How is it that all these vampires get to be everywhere, and then suddenly I shut up? <laughs> right, reading in here and attach it together, I was like, oh, that's insidious. I even remember being told one time in an interview, won't name who, uh, I said, hey, what'd you think about the Vajanko? We had to get rid of them. They didn't really make any sense in what they had. That's because we didn't critically read this book to read what their purpose is. And when you look these things up, they're unknowable. 
they're deliberately it's it's like they're the uh the think tank the hands of the worm their job is to set up things for the long game and that's what they do they sit back listen and then apply creepy creepy things entities now that's it for that story in terms of the centurion's letters and it doesn't stop right this rolls forward and slamming home what uh good old lord uh what is it lord craven had this series of things that come out. I won't even butcher the uh, the pronunciation of it, but we're going to get to the story of it because this is really what kind of kind of got him kicked in the teeth, I'd say. And this is when we get to the First Church of Danborough. And it's it's what he read here. It's talking about that there's a place yep. in Scotland, right? Uh, Danborough is, is uh, the place they name. Um, and the fact is, is that this missionary just decides, hey, I'm going to go out here, spread the good word, see what's what. And it tells the tale of what happened. It says his missionary goes out there. Missionary nods his head. The other missionary nods his or, or the, the town elder nods his head. The missionary says, hey, I'm going to build here a church. And I'm going to convert all your people, pagan. What do you think about that? And they're picks. That's what's all around is picks, right? And they're all just kind of like having a lazy day. And he's like, yeah, I guess you are then. And uh, you sure did bring a lot of people. He's like, yeah, we did. In the name of God, we brought a lot of people. We're going we're gonna to build something here. Right here? It's like, yeah. Have a day. You're not going to oppose us? For what? And he walks away. And the whole town, all the picks come out to see these people. Lay the foundations. Take their measure. Measure twice. Cut once. All the rocks they're rolling around. The whole good time they're trying to have build this place. And then after a good hard day's labor, they go to sleep. Well, they wake up the next day. And none of the foundations are there. That building's gone. It's like somebody picked it up and robbed it. Just, Just took it away. Right. And and the priest is pissed. Right? The missionary goes to the elder and says, Hey, what happened? Like like where what what does your people do with it? Not even thinking, how would they steal a building and you not know it considering you slept on the inside of it? Right? Let's think about that. And uh he, he can't think about that. Because if you put yourself in the shoes of that missionary, you're looking around in hostility on all sides. You're trying to build a place of safety. You don't have it yet. Got to be in your mind, your P's and Q's. And these picks are like, yeah. Seems that your building left. I don't know. And he goes, well, you should have told me I was building on a bog. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's building on a bog. You should have told me the land was bad. He's like, oh, no, that's solid land. That's good land. You're, you're good to go. Huh. And then the priest goes and he, and he talks to all his people, right? What happens? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, he... They, obviously, he's not going to be deterred um, just because he wakes up one morning and all the foundations are gone and the ground seems to have mysteriously churned in the night. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's resolute. He's a man of God. He knows that by uh, you know sheer willpower, he'll see it through because you know uh, he's got forces behind him these pagans don't understand. So he, he hammers to it again, right? Gets going again. They, get, uh, they start to frame it. I uh, you know all of a sudden like tools things like that start going missing, and uh, he goes back to the village elder. He's like, "Are you people stealing stuff from me?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, we're not. Like otherwise you'd see it." He's like, "Are there other people around here?" He's like, "No, not people." <laughs> and the guy's like, "Okay," like just accepts that answer because this this dodgy elder of this of this uh this this town you know simply says hey can i build a church he's like i don't think it'd be allowed he's like you're gonna stop me he's like no i won't stop you (laughs) it's like what (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Just Meats? this dodgy, nah. dodgy talk that this guy's got going on. We're almost like, this is their entertainment. They haven't seen stuff this good in a century. Sure, build your church. We can't wait. Um, so oh, yeah, he, that's right, because he even told them, oh, you're bringing your God? Yeah, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, go yeah. ahead and bring him. Oh, yeah, we love him. Yep. The guy goes again, it's, you know, they're like, fine, you know what? Whatever. We'll, we'll keep going. All of a sudden, his workers start, you know, like, losing sleep at night, getting nightmares, crap like <laughs> that. They start going away, you know, evacuating. He's like, you know what? If I have to build this church myself, I'm going to. There's only a little bit left. So he does. The last remaining guy, you know, this, uh, this missionary starts finishing the last remaining tiles on the roof or whatever's required, <laughs> gets it done. Says, Lord, I have seen it through. I'm just going to sleep the night away, and it's going to be great. Next day, church is gone. Only it's, thing that's left there is a big, festering pit of brackish water. I, I thought it was a badass story, especially when they say the Danboro, uh, the first church of Danboro becomes the Danboro pit. And they talk about yep. the fact that anybody who sleeps near it, because this black, brackish, oily liquid is now all, all that's left of where the church is. But anybody yep. who goes near there can hear him giving a sermon, but it's in Latin and it's to the worm. Yep. It's dedicated to the worm. They have it in there. I didn't translate it on purpose, right? Um, I was <laughs> like, I'm all There's I'm things all good. in there. There's things in there, words you'll pick out without being a scholar in Latin. <laughs> Right, you'll just just be like, ah, okay, yeah, okay, we'll just leave, okay, bad stuff. Bad stuff is what you'll hear, and it's great. But wait, I know what you're thinking. Oh, the land will swallow you whole, the worm really hates God. Oh, boy, howdy. And uh, uh, let's hold that thought and go to the next story. Hey, folks, DJ here. I just want to take some time to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliations by Flyles Games. This soon-to-launch game is brought to you by the same team that's bringing you Vampire the Masquerade chapters. And they just released a trailer to go along with it. We at 25 invite you to check it out at werewolfthepocalypse-retaliation.com to catch a peek at the trailer and be updated of when it'll appear on Kickstarter, which seems to be early 2022. The game promises to have everything that made chapters endearing to us, the fans, including scenarios, investigations, beautiful miniatures, and more. With that, thanks for your time. Now back to the show. Right? The missionary's letter. And I know what you're thinking. We couldn't possibly be in Scotland, and we couldn't possibly be in Danborough again. Wrong in both counts. We certainly are. We're out there again. Now, why? Because time goes by. This is talking about, in these two in these two stories, of what happens as they try to come out here and spread this Christianity, right? And in the second story, it's a really kick-ass missionary, right? It's the one you want. This guy's incredibly devout. He has his rosary. There's a picture of him looking somber. His he's, feet are set forward. He's coming out here to get it done. And he's, he's dead set uh, to see this through. And when he gets out to Danbro this time, there is a church. They do have a place, and he's out there, and the people are part of it, and they're happy to see him. This is sort of on the outskirts, I should say. It's not in Danborough proper, but the outskirts of it, and that's yep. okay. They're happy for him. They're very generous with what they have to help him out and be there, and he says, you know what? I can't go where it's comfortable. I got to go where they need me the most, and he's going to go out to the freaking Danborough, right? And as he goes out there, he says like triple prayers, quads up, all the big words for the super prayers, right, as he heads that direction. And uh, it's very important to me that he says that because right as he spends all day walking and gets there, he he sees this poor woman bent over trying to do the work of removing a, a tree from what looks like farmland. Like she's trying to get rid of it. 
And she's doing it with like a weird bone knife is what it looks like from a distance. Uh, uh, To me, it was described like a butter knife. Like if you had in any medieval way of describing a useless instrument as a butter knife to, to carve a tree, that's what was being used. And there you go, because yeah, because it was I, t- I thought bones. I think it'd be the same difference, but yeah, because it took her all day, is what he's saying, all day to to take out one branch on one side. What does she do? And then he saw her stand up and get like a profile view of her and sees that she's pregnant, advanced stages of pregnancy, and he's like, oh, oh, let me rush over there and help her. And as she sees him come running up, she drops the knife to the side, puts her hands on both sides of the tree, and. We'll pause at this point. If you were triggered, this is a great time to get coffee. <laughs> right? Just saying. Um, we gave that warning. Um, so what the woman does is she impales herself on a branch right through the womb. Is what she does. And the priest, he, the missionary goes behind her and he's, oh my God, he's shaking, right? He's going, he goes to grab her, yank her off of it. Oh, you know, he's thinking of the child, he's thinking of what happens. And all this icor is coming out of her and whatnot. And she's just basically like, get the hell out of here. And he grabs the tree again and slams herself forward. This time so hard, it comes out of her genitalia, right? The branch goes in, down, really just rips her open. And it's going to kill her, right? That's what it does. But the yeah. priest catches it in the side, part of it. And he just can't do anything to help her, and she's, she's, she's dead. Right? That's what happens. He spends the next part of his day digging a very shallow grave, putting her in it. Now, what happens at that point, Nick? And I'll be honest, I'm asking you because I'm really uncertain. When I read that once, looked at it twice, <clears throat> I'm like, did this guy suffer a delirium too? Did he, like, was this shell-shocked? Did he hallucinate I, part of this? I don't, I don't think he needed to, man. Because this, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about, like, uh, we've seen similar things in, in other movies, you know, and so on and so forth. Like, this is not an entirely un, un, unknown concept, but, yeah, he, he's trying to, well, uh, I guess, uh, stick her in this, uh, you know, this, uh, this relatively holy, like, uh, like, uh, burial. And as he's doing that, her belly starts to move of its own volition. And he immediately goes all the way up to 110%. Fuck this. And he's out. Just out. Out like trout. He, he runs. Like, like yeah, maybe Rotrek level runs. But he runs as, until he can't run no more. And then sleeps shivering in the cold of night. You know, until, uh, in, until like, uh, he gets whatever few winks of sleep he can get until morning comes. It's and it's interesting, right? Because he he does that, but when he wakes up, he comes across something that is uh, best described as fantastical, right? It's like like he hasn't been through enough. He comes yep. on another grave area where there's a young woman in the ground that looks very much like the same one he just left back there, except maybe it's even like a, identical. Right? There's a cart nearby, kind of overturned, and 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 there she is, and it looks like her womb was busted open from the inside. Right, inside out. You could tell that her, um, I forget what bone it was. Her her hip bone, I want to say. Pelvic was, bone, I think. Her, yeah, her pelvic bone was split in two and obviously broken outward. Like, just savage yep. strength. She didn't survive it. And then he realizes it's because the girl is, is young. Right? That's, that's what it is. She was not the age to have a child. 
And immediately in his head is reconciling. He's like, who raped her? Who did this to her? Why did they yep. do this to her? And then he's looking like, well, what? It burst from within? And then he sees that it crawled away, whatever this was, made it across the road or something, or down the road, and crawled down into a hole. And it's at that point, he just decided to kill himself. Yeah, he knows this- for good. He, uh, he, he comes in, like, what choice does he have? It's like he went from one end to another, was told how bad it was, came out here to see it, and just these, these poor girls that go through this, he's just, that, that's it, he checks out. And that's the story. Now, this is the worst, best foreshadowing I've ever heard of, and I'm reminded of the pornography that said this was. Mm. Right? This is like horror porn, it really is. It's one of those things where you're like, oh, okay, that's shocking. And then they give you imagery. None of it, none of it's super graphic, but they give you imagery. It's well done uh, to to be. I won't say tasteful, but at least it's not. We're showing you what that actually is. You know, it's like, oh no, this is this is what he came upon. You know, it's an old timey wimey way of showing you that uh, this is the tale and this is how it begins. And if you know it, you know how to speak to it because this will help you remember it. And that's how it is. But there is a disturbing picture in there where it talks about what this priest felt and why he took his own life. And the fact is that he thinks that whatever allowed these children to be birthed in this capacity must be something that is also eating them, right? Or, or that they get to live in whatever horrors walk in the night. And he said it's better that he's in hell. He chose eternal damnation where it makes sense as to why he's there for what he did than to be in a world where this is done to women. And that's his, that's his choice, just over and out. And I was, I had to pause there. We got that part in the book. I sat here and said, I love this book. I got to remember that, but why? Found my old campaign notes where I was just having a heyday uh, going through it. But what I did was I used this book, like I said in the beginning, just a reminder, where I was taking excerpts. And I read about the excerpts and I made up my story with it. And it was fun. It was easy to do. Had the players go through it. And we never completed the campaign. But had I read this book front to back? Oh, man. That's, that was like gut-wrenching uh, to, to have there and go, man, I, what I wrote was shit compared to what's actually in this book. You know what I mean? Like, oh, rough. But then we yep, rolled that to... Was, uh, that was one of the magic lines, man. That was, the, that was the moment where I stopped and said, hey, let's take a little more time on this book. Right. Let's just, <laughs> let's just pump the brakes. This is, uh, let's, this uh, is uh, let's, uh, let's go a little bit deeper here. Uh, book two, The Epoch of Consumption, is a different slew of tales and a little more... Um, we're going to get to the most important one tonight. We're a little long here, but we want to make sure that the Black Monk is what we ended with. And uh, we'll give you a preface of what's at the end of it. So, you know, we've got to leave you stuff to mind for certain. But what book two rolls in is the, is the Epoch of Consumption is it talks about this infamous black monk of Europe. And what it easily goes into is to know that everybody has a black monk back in the day. There's always a monk that was incredibly evil that went around town and did what he did. You know, one monk talks about diabolism and how the devil himself is who this monk represented, teaching you stories of what exists in hell and how to get there. Oh man, do we love our diabolism at this point. And it's everywhere. And that's kind of how it goes. And then they said, but that's, that's all false. We actually have a real black monk that we caught. And you got to know the story of, of, I think it's, it's Giles de Reyes. Is that how it's said? It can't be. That's like um, the world's worst French, I think, I've ever delivered. Gidera. Or something like that. Gidera. Yeah. Um, basically, if you know Bluebeard, the story of Bluebeard, uh, the real life story of Bluebeard, this is... They, they again it's like what they did with the doors they took a real story and then they included this guy in here 
And, and where it's real is that it is said that the reason why Ghidorah uh, was... Uh, why does that sound like something Godzilla fights? Ghidorah. <laughs> right? Godzilla. Like, sorry, that's just a bad... My thing. It's just in my head now. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Giles DeRay would be like the, uh, the English pronunciation of it, right? There you go. So there's nothing wrong with it. You know, you just don't have to sound French if you don't want to. <laughs> no, I don't, uh, because I, I'm butchering it. But Giles the Race, um, good old Bluebeard, he um, he was a child serial killer, is what it has. They said they asked him, he must have been 100 children he got away with killing. Now, whatever reason he had it there, this is also the same guy who was right. a lord and a baron and traveled with Joan of Arc. And, and was a marshal for the Hundred Years' War against England. He was a decorated hero of france and a prolific serial killer and if you look up as to why <laughs> this guy actually was was, was just cold-blooded and they say serial killer and i'm sitting here thinking to myself no one noticed right. like a, a hundred kids shouldn't go missing in that era at all in any easy capacity not just a hundred kids though and when you consider the retinue that was guilty it talks about the fact that he had a monk a black monk with him in that regard and uh, well, maybe not a black monk, but they had a monk with him because he said, "This is real." The, the real life portion of it here says that he had a falling out with the monk that was with him that led to the clergy launching an investigation into him and discovering all this stuff. But if yep. you're me, your conspiracy brain goes off and goes, "Wait a second, you waited till you had an argument yep. to suddenly have a problem with it. You didn't have a problem with it before. How did you not notice things before?" Like, how did this happen? This decorated guy, and you didn't notice what was going on, things disappearing? And this is where this Black Spiral book, bastard book, kind of picks up where it lets off, because this monk flees. Uh, what happens with the good old uh, Bluebeard? <laughs> he flees. He goes away and does his thing, and he eventually runs afoul of people, and gets caught. And why he gets caught? Because what he's done is legendary. And you hear this from the... Inqui- I like how they do this. It's inquis- inquisitorially written. It's from the Inquisition that yep. was launched against them and what they had on him. And you're, you're listening to them read his charges and what he did and what went on. But the creepy pictures they put in here of what this monk was like. Like showing this fanatic face of wide open eyes and this huge grin. of uh, You actually know this grin. It just dawned on me. If you've ever seen the classic, uh, what it became classic, the troll grin. You know mm. what I'm talking about? From the meme, yeah. Yeah, from the meme. That's what it looks like. It reminds me of that. It's still just as creepy in that regard. But I want to get to this Black Month, what he said he did, right? First, got to know the behavior. When they get him, it's like no big deal. He doesn't care. He doesn't talk to anybody. He just sits in a right. cell, and as they're kind of forming court, he wants the court to be formed. And, and everyone's getting all this, all this word, right? Suddenly, everybody wants to talk about it, right? He's at like the Weinstein of the medieval area. It's like suddenly everybody have a story about what he did and this this evil bastard. And it talks about it first. He's going around doing God's work. Good work. He's healing people that need to be healed of diseases. Literally says diseases. And people have had bad luck and bad times. He gives them uh, solace and peace and are able to move on. However, always, without exception, their life gets far worse. To those that were cured for disease is to be replaced with another disease ten times worse than what they had, sometimes anguishing for a year before death, definitely diseasing and getting into others, you know, afflicted, terrible things. 
The people who he helped grant peace to, suddenly their life is taken over by the world's worst calamities. Left and right, things go afoul, nothing goes the way they should. And that's just hearsay, a lot of it, but it's it's no coincidence that he dealt with them. In- He's like a medieval wishmaster. You know, you, you wish for something to get better, and it does, but at what cost? And it, and it rolls worse, right? As they get quiet and they're chilling with him, they go, you know what? You're going to talk, and you're going to tell us what's going on, and he doesn't say anything. So they torture him for three days. Tell us what you did, day one. Yeah. Torture left and right, like only the Inquisition can do. And they say his eyes lit up when they decided they are going to torture him. Like, oh yeah, the entertainment's here. This is the Inquisition, right? This is back in the day Inquisition, invented. Yep. Look up the pair. And you understand the type of things they were inflicting on this guy. It's a, it's a vicious thing. Day two, they torture him. Day three, they torture him. They get nothing. At the end of day three, they go to talk to him again. And he's like, you know what? All right, I'm going to tell you guys what's going on. Just matter of factly. And they're like, what? He says, yeah, I was kicking it with Giles the Reyes and uh, you know, his entourage. You know, Joan of Arc. Yeah, we were hanging with her. And uh, what happened is, is we break away and we decided that we were going to commit sodomy and some kids. He's like, what? Yeah, you know, I wasn't into the whole sodomy thing. It was more like Giles DeRay's and his cousin that would do that to him. But then, uh, you know, they did do other stuff too. And uh, we would like decapitate him afterward and do stuff to the corpse and, and all that fun stuff. And uh, me, I preferred the girls though. And they were like, eh, what? Did you just say it? He goes, oh, me, I always preferred the girls. You know, it's, it's some of them would be very young, like too young to have anything done to them and too bad. And then a lot of them would be just about to be mature, but not mature enough. And then I immediately thought back to that missionary. Right? And here's why. He talked about using an instrument on the women. They said, what instrument? Where is this? He goes, it's an instrument that he used to impregnate them to ensure they birthed monsters into the world. And you were like, huh? The hell is he? And he says, oh yeah? Well, where is this instrument? And he starts laughing, cackling, really. And he lifts his monk garments to reveal his genitalia. Now, what I want to tell you guys is genitalia is described in this book, but they don't get graphic with it. It's it's as much, and remember, this is a guy who's like the uh, the note taker for the uh, Inquisition. He's like he's got to say how it is, but he does in a way where he's like the guy's member was freakishly large, and it's and it's and scaled, covered, disgusting with warts, but quills. This is something that would hurt, would cause immense pain, but would serve its function. He knew it would do that. They all did. What will throw you for a loop, because I had to read it three times. I literally had to look at this and was like, it can't be what I read. This courtroom calls a recess. <laughs> and they say, hang on a second. Is that real? Nah, it's not. Okay, okay, okay. Well, it got out of hand, right? So they got to they gotta keep decorum in the court, right? You can't just have some crazy monk throwing his dirty wang around. And they, and they call a timeout, but they don't just call a timeout. They say, hey, you, uh, court note taker, why don't you stay out here? What do you mean? Me, Cardinal so-and-so, Archbishop so-and-so, Cardinal this, High Inquisitor that, the Grand Inquisitor so-and-so, this dude over here and this guy because we like him, and Lord Mucky Muck because it's his land. We got to go back over here. Bailiff, why don't you bring that, uh, that woman that was tried for being a witch that's next up, and why don't you bring her in the room? We, we need to talk to these people. <clears throat> now you may be thinking you know where this is going and if you're thinking like I'm thinking or like I did you paused, you went back you wanted to read and make sure you had this right and and you did have it right 
They excuse themselves from anything officiated to get their names down. Their names are stricken from this record. And what that means is that the name is not complete at all. You might get a first yep. name, but you're only going to get a letter of the last name, if that's even the right letter, if it wasn't even made up first names. Done on purpose, but they list the titles over there because it's an officiated document. And, and the executioner is involved. But the point is, they have this girl get worked over by this monk to see how that genitalia worked. I couldn't believe it. And I sat there and went, wait a minute, this book is about the epoch of consumption. Listen, right? she's just a witch. Exactly. Exactly what I thought. And I was like, this book is, is it's Easter egg in you. It's pointing out the fact that you think that the worst in that room is the monk. You think the most obvious is the, is the worst of it. When in fact, it can't be. Because who just went and did what? These guys have their own personal freak show that's the Inquisition. They're running around and accusing people, stripping them of their rights so they can do what they want to them. All under the name of... Because it's the eater, eater of souls. And that's exactly right. It's, it's seeing them to their end. That's the whole point of it. And, that, and that's, that's that story with the Black Monk, almost. Because there's another interesting part. This court sends away for Giles the Reyes, right? And they want to say, hey, why don't you come over here so we can talk to you about what this guy says. He's saying some outlandish claims. And Giles doesn't come. He sends a guy. Very loyal guy that could stand up for him and yep. says, Hey, I'm, I'm, I serve the Lord at the keep, and I can attest to you, there is nothing bad going on at all. Like, this monk had a falling out with Giles, complete horseshit. Nothing happened here, nothing odd. This guy is a child killer, though. That I believe 100%. And I knew something was off with him when we were here. He shouldn't have done Damn. what he did. What a shitty guy. Uh, we're gone now. We're leaving. To later on be accused of being a serial killer he does after the fact. But this all fits into that story and what you just said, Eater of Souls. Like, you're going to settle for the easiest story, but it's you know something's off. That's the point here, is that those who are innocent, who can't defend themselves from the predations of the well, these predators, under the guise of justice, under the guise of pursuing what is needed to be done. Even the yep. monk itself is supposed to be a being of spirituality, peace, the right guy, the good guy, isn't at all. And talks about walking over Europe with impunity. He was able to do this and go everywhere because no one talks to anybody. Everyone trusts the church. And you begin to realize this is always about basically throwing mud in the church's eye. You don't get salvation with the worm. You get reality. This stuff is done. This book does an interesting thing, though. When you read that and read how they kind of just give a head nod to a, to a bad thing like that. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to a conversation where... Um, you know, we, we had an interview with Dawkins once where he talked about, you know, how to proper way to use villainy. I think that's why this book hasn't been updated. I sincerely think that. Like, you haven't seen another thing come out like that because this, did this go too far? Like, we're thinking about, did something real happen? When I, when I roleplay and I play in a game and I know there's bad stuff, there's going to be bad stuff. It's one thing to create a fictional villain, right? It's another thing where you're dragging in and almost glorifying uh, someone who existed that did what they did. Now, I'm not saying it's it's something that shouldn't be done and that you don't get to play Giles the Rage. You're not running into him, but the name drops there. That's enough to get you to go look it up. And what is fame if not that? Right? Living yep. the You know what I mean? To bring it into. And when you play a game, you don't necessarily want to run across that. But I also think that's what is genius about this for someone like me. It's a gentle flirtation that says, you probably won't look up the name and you don't need to. If you just read this book, it's enough that the monk is basically a parody of that real-life serial killer. And we made the monk technically worse. But in my eyes, you didn't make him technically worse. When you go to look up 
Bluebeard. Old Bluebeard's... It, I say Bluebeard because there's a story called Bluebeard that's allegedly was inspired by Giles the Rays. But when you go look him up and read what he actually did, him, his cousin, his entourage, you're, uh, you're sickened. If you're familiar with the Toolbox murders, it's, it's right in line with that. Right? It's a, it's a weird thing to make you almost want to believe in reincarnation. It's, it's a terrible event in, in history. These things even happen. And uh, that's, that's what I'm getting across. But in this book, it, it oddly fits for what it's talking about. The very fact that you go look that name up fits the theme of the Eater of Souls. Does it not? Mm. It's deadening yep. you to that existence. That's the point. You're devoured just a little bit more. You get just a little more jaded. And that's the point. Right? When will you rage? You should rage now. If you read this far in the book, you know that you're dancing the spiral. And me and Nick, we're going to vanish here and live in the ground with the serpent people. But um, before we go... <laughs> Still. There's a final group. Right? It's a final grouping in this book near the end. A whole, a whole bunch of info, actually. That kind of goes over the journey and the actual cult ritual uh, for walking the spiral. Talking about how it's done from a mortal perspective. How to line it up. How to assign titles, jobs, links, and the circles and what they mean. Yep. And they even have a play of how someone goes through this. But remember back to the purpose of this. Good old Freighter II made this to be mass produced. To be put in people's hands so that they could self-do this. Going off of what C. Jung, uh, the psychologist, said. You know, find your inner dark self, face it, and then look at the world from within. That's what this is saying. That in the Temple Obscura is where you do this. And the Temple Obscura, the fastest way to get to it's from within. Your dark self goes there. And to know that is to know this. You complete the read of the book. You go through it spiritually in your mind. And what's the difference if you can go through it in your dreams? Very creepy, great way to address this and bring it up. And transcend the boundaries of the worm being a physical entity that has to be there with Pentex and Silver to actually be a real threat to your werewolf players. It doesn't. Dreams, interpretation, cults, reading material, writing, corruption, all the tools are here in this prop book for you to read numerous yep. times. Get different takes than us to get it. And uh, the final thing I want to bring up is that there is a cool section in here that I've never seen anywhere else where they get into the uh, pentagramic keys. <clears throat> Pret- mm. Or pretanic, excuse me, the pretanic keys. Yep. There's symbology for the for the urge worms themselves. Cool symbols, names, words, a nice chart to it. It almost reminds yeah. you. Isn't that like it's, a? It it gives you it gives you all the great stuff you always wanted to give to like your worm lore players. Like, what is this glyph? Wow, this is the glyph for the beast of war. Well, how would you know that? Well, you don't have to worry about it, ladies and gentlemen. It's in here, and it makes sense. and tells you why it's drawn the way it is. And it does that for all three facets of the triadic worm. On top of that, it gives you the names of, uh, of all of the different aspects of the worm. And it gives you, like, their elemental energies. And it does it all in, like, you know, old Pictish and how it's translated to modern era. And it tells you the male Jin Incarna that rules over that aspect of the worm. And it's a, it's a cool little tool. And I would say of the, of all this book, if you had to skip most of it, um, that's a, that's a good one, uh, to at least remember to have it for just what Nick said. And finally, when it gets down here to talk to the end comments and commentary with the afterward, this, this is all good stuff. 
when you go through mm-hmm. it to get to it, I wouldn't skip out on it that are very useful. It's notes of where they got stuff is useful for that too. And uh, finally, um, I think I say finally a lot, but I do mean that uh, the last thing that comes into my head, I should say, On the Road with Chucko the Monkey Boy is a story <laughs> that's thrown in that I will not ruin it for you. That you need to get this. And if your name's Brennan or Brentron, as we call him, I immediately thought of him and DJ on the road with Chucko the Monkey Boy. Right? It's probably Devil Monkey of the East Coast comment that we have and kept alive around here. But to read this, <laughs> it isn't what you think. It's, it's off the rails. And uh, it's an interesting little take that they have here at the end of it. Um, but that's it for the Book of the Worm here. Book of the Worm. Chronicle of the Black Labyrinth, excuse me. Might as well be the actual diary of the worm in that regard. Yeah. Uh, but um, do I think it's good? Yes. I do love this book. I still do. Um, I will tell you, young Bob he used it and thought it was great that it could creep people out. Mature Bob looks at this and goes, ah. <laughs> Ooh. You, you need to get it. You need to get it for every reason why you, you, you shouldn't have it. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Um, I know for a fact that if you're somebody who likes the Green Inferno or any sort oh, of... Well, now you're kind of looking at it as like a, as as gore pornography. It is in a way, right? It's done that way. It's done where it's but like... You, would you say it's arcane and esoteric pornography? <laughs> yes, I would. That's why I said I love that line. Were there any truer words stated in this whole book than that editor? Uh, Get it by it. That's great. Fill our coffers, scumbags, enjoy, and you're out. That's just kind of how it went. But uh, Nick, man, thank you for coming with me on this book. I know it's uh it's not a rough read, but it was uh, whew, it was it was exciting. Actually, it'll it was, definitely uh, get you going. No, this this book was great. It was uh, I can't tell you the amount of crazy references to all things World of Darkness that get splattered in here between vampire mage um everything in between even more calls back to old books we had before and coming back and forth everything that's of any interest whatsoever to the worm and uh, and tie-ins is in here it's a glorious book and uh that's all we got folks it's a little over time but i i know you'll enjoy it and uh tune in next time thanks for listening